Yes. Okay, our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 4, verses 1 to 30. This is the word of God. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples in John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sikar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is dim. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you see? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to the town and were coming to him. Thus says the Lord. Smarji. Sorry, I think there's a bit of a mistake there. I think we should have verses 25 to 26, so follow along with this if, if you have these in front of you. So guys, to this week we're going to take a break from our Galatians series, which we were in, which we preached the whole book of Galatians, verse uh, chapter 1 to chapter 6. 
Um, the reason why I'm taking a break, usually we do two Galatian series and then a Doctrine of the Hearts for the Heart series, but the reason why I'm taking a break and only doing one is because next, next week the preacher, uh, the pastor will preach on uh, Romans chapter 4, which is very similar to the book of Galatians. So I thought you guys might be bored, and I just thought to change it up a little bit for you. So we're going to do a Doctrine for the Heart this week instead of doing our Galatian series. So originally, I chose this text because I wanted to talk about one specific doctrine, which is the doctrine of worship. But then after I studied this text, I saw that it actually was talking also about another doctrine. And if I don't touch on it, then I'd be unfaithful to the passage that we have today. It still talks about worship, but it also talks about the person of Christ and how worship relates to our encounter with the person of Christ. So we're going to learn about worship as it is revealed on the Samaritan woman's encounter with Jesus Christ. And I hope we pay close attention to this because as we worship and know the person of Christ more, we will see that it actually gives us a lot of answers to our deepest longings, our longings and our desires that we are so often blinded to because of the distraction of so many things. So there's three things I want to point out from today's sermon or from today's passage. The first thing is Jesus as man and the distraction of stuff. Jesus as prophet and a question about worship. Jesus as Messiah and self-forgetful worship. Jesus as man and the distraction of stuff. Jesus as prophet and a question about worship. Jesus as Messiah and forgetful worship. Before that, let's, let's pray. Lord, I beg you that your word will be exposed. Your word will, will come out and its meaning impact our hearts. Lord, that my own words will not be a distraction for us to understand what you have revealed to us in this passage. And we thank you for your spirit, as we have uh, uh, learned earlier in our confession of sin, that it is a life-giving spirit. And I pray that you be with us today and be present with us. And through the truths in your word, remind us of your gospel and renew us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first point. Jesus as man and the distraction of stuff. The first four verses of our passage gives us the context of where everything is. And we have to understand this passage in the context that it's in. So what's happening right now is Jesus just left Judea, and he's walking to Galilee. Why? Because the Pharisees in Judea were increasingly becoming hostile to him, and Jesus left to avoid them. Now, he didn't leave because he was scared of persecution, Often in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus' life, Jesus would leave the Pharisees because his time has not yet come, it says. When his time is to come, he didn't leave. He stayed in the garden, and he gave himself to be crucified. But until that time came, he uh, avoided them um, until the proper appointed time. So Jesus left Judea because it was not yet his time to Galilee. This was about a 90-kilometer walk north from Judea to Galilee. And the quickest way to get to Galilee was through a place called Samaria. This place was in between Judea and Galilee. Samaria was also a place where a lot of non-Jewish people lived at. So, after a 40-kilometer walk, halfway, right, to Samaria, this is about five or six hours walking from Judea, Jesus got tired. And he stopped and he rested in the middle of his journey in in a city in Samaria called Sychar if that's how you pronounce it. Jesus, verse 6, was tired, was weary, it says. Note Jesus' humanity here. Earlier we said that Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. He felt 
man emotions. He lived under man limitations. He got tired. He got thirsty. We see often that he was sleepy and needed a rest. Jesus was fully man. So he stopped on the sixth hour, it says. I think that's verse uh, between verses 1 and 4. He, he stopped on the sixth hour, which is noon. That's how you say noon at, the te- uh, uh, at that time. And it was the hottest time of the day. And he stopped at a place called Sikar at a well at Sikar. And not to get into the history, but in the Old Testament, this land where the, where the well is at belonged to Jacob. And Jacob gave it to his son, and that's why it's called Jacob's well. And this is where Jesus stopped and encountered the Samaritan woman and started this very interesting encounter where we see Jesus progressively revealing to this woman who he is, his identity. But he doesn't do it in such a way that is guessable by us. He did it in an interesting way. He doesn't just tell her who he is. He didn't give her a systematic lesson of who he is, but he took the longer road. And let's let's see how this connects one with the other. First, when the woman saw Jesus, she considered him a hostile stranger. She considered him somebody who was dangerous. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, Samaritans were often not treated kindly by Jewish people. There's a lot of um, um, tension, racial tension, and, and, and history between them. We don't have to get into that. But because of this, the Samaritan woman seemed a bit defensive when she first encountered Jesus. She said, you're a Jewish man. Why are you talking to me? Is there an ulterior motive here? I don't know who you are, hostile stranger. Jesus answered her in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, so progression of this woman's understanding of who Jesus is moved forward. This woman now wasn't just assuming that Jesus was a hostile stranger. Now she's thinking that he's a friendly stranger offering her water. In fact, they were in the hottest time of the day near a well. It would make sense that Jesus was offering her physical water to quench her physical thirst. So her Her understanding of who Jesus is moved forward from a hostile stranger to a friendly person. Look at verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. She's thinking about physical water. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So her understanding of who Jesus is progressed from being a hostile stranger to a friendly person but she still viewed him as merely a person, as merely a human being. Look at how she addressed her, him in verse 11. She said, Sir. To her, Jesus was just another man, a kind man, but just another man. So Jesus wanted to help her understand who he is and continued in this dialogue, which is how he answered verses 13 to 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water talking about this physical water you're referring to. Everyone who drinks of this water you're talking about will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying this. He's helping the woman understand who he is progressively. He's saying what I'm offering is not a water that quenches your physical thirst. 
Jesus saying, woman, or madam, it's probably a better way to say it, like from this passage, there is another thirst that you have. There is a deeper longing that you have that you are so blinded to. And I think it's the same longing that we often are also blinded to. I know that I am. So what is this need of hers? What is this longing that she has? What is this longing of ours that is more urgent than physical thirst? Well, it's not that obvious, but if you look at the circumstances of how this woman drew water out of the well, we'll see that her biggest need is not for her physical thirst to be quenched, but it's another deeper longing. It is to deal with her guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are two things that she works very, 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 very hard to avoid feeling, like we often do. Where do we see this? By taking a look at how she went to the well. All the commentators on this passage will tell you that in that day, it is more normal for a woman to go and get water out of a well during the early morning or the late afternoons because it was less hot. That's when people would go. That's when the crowd would go, in the early morning and and the late afternoon. But this woman went in the middle of the day when it was hottest. Why is that? And often, a woman at that time would never go and draw water on their own. They would always go with with their friends, with other groups of women. But this woman went alone. She chose to go when um, when it was least crowded, in the hottest time of the day, And she chose to go alone, risking all the dangers that come with it. Why did she do that? Why did she purposely go at the hottest time of the day and alone? It's very likely she did this to avoid running into people from the town. Why did she want to avoid people in the town? Well, if you read verses 16 to 18, you see that this woman carries with her a lot of shame. Look at verse 15. Even when Jesus offered her living water, which she misunderstood as physical water, she wanted it, but she still wanted it mainly so that she can avoid her shame. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give, give me this water, this, this physical water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. He, she's seeking physical water from this sir so that she will not have to come where? To the well, this public place, to get water. She wants to avoid this public place so much. Why is that? Because in verses 16 to 18, we see that she has had five divorces. And the person that she's currently with is not her husband. And this was no secret to the town. And this brings her shame. And this reminds her of her guilt. And she would rather not come back to this well again if she could. Or if she had to go to the well, she'd rather go at a time when nobody's there so that she can avoid her shame. She can avoid her guilt. Give me this water so that I will not have to come here to draw water. Give me this water. Give me this material thing so that I can avoid feeling shame. Now, it's not wrong to ask Jesus for material things. I think that's okay, as long as we don't worship the gifts over the gift giver. But this passage does ask us to be self-introspective. What is really the reason of why we want material things? Is it just to meet a physical need? Or is there more? Is there a deeper longing that we're actually trying to meet through these material requests that we bring to Jesus so often? Like the Samaritan woman, yes, we often want physical water simply because we need it. She needed water to drink. Give me this water so that I will no longer thirst. We need a job to pay bills. 
We need a car to get around. That's understandable and right. But I wonder if, like the Samaritan woman, there is also a deeper need of why we would want a job, a good career, and a car. We need a job and a career to pay bills, yes. But is it not often that our identity and self-esteem are very attached and dictated to how well we perform in our jobs, to how little mistakes we do in our jobs, to how good our careers are, to how far up the corporate ladder we climb? I'm not saying it's bad to want to perform. I'm not saying it's bad to want to do your jobs excellently. It's not, it's not bad to want to climb the corporate ladder. I think that's great. But often we've made work more than just work, haven't we? We've made work somehow as something that dictates who we are, our value, our, our, our person, as if having a better job makes us a better person. And having not so good of a job makes us a lesser person. Different cultures have different versions of this, so I'm not picking on Indonesia, but because I'm Indonesian, I can't pick on Indonesia, I guess. Um, but in Indonesia, I call this the om factor. Okay? It's, it's um, uh, a friend of mine, just, as a friend of mine, a preacher, preached a sermon, and when he was done with the sermon, uh, this guy who had a really good job uh, and a lot of money, he's like a powerful man, who, has, who knows nothing about preaching, came to him and started giving him all these instructions about how he could have preached better, about how this text says this, says that, and how he could have done this better and then that better. And my friend, who did not have such a prestigious job and a lot of money, just sat there and said, yeah, um, yeah, um, but, um. And I'm like, this dude knows nothing about preaching. This dude knows nothing about how to exegete this passage. You know much more than him, but you're saying, yeah, yeah, um, and you're just, yeah, um, yeah, oh, bener, oh, bener. It's like, why? Why did you give him so much authority when he has no knowledge of that subject? Because somehow in our culture, the better job you have and the more money you have, the more authority you have to all of life. Where did that come from? You all of a sudden become the guru that knows the answers to everything. You don't. Just because you have a lot of money and a better job, it doesn't make you more. But that's how we think of it. That's how I often think of it when I meet people too. I don't know why, but somehow we've made a job, career, money more than just a job, more than just money, more than just material things. We've made it the measure of who we are. Jobs become more than jobs. Money becomes more than just money. It becomes our source of our identity, what dictates our honor and our shame. This can be said with other material things, with a car, a house, even a spouse. We need those things to meet our physical needs, yes, but subliminally, does not a car often become more than just a car? It's just a car. And a house becomes more than just a house. And a spouse becomes more than just a spouse. Did you know in China, Women who aren't married over the age of 30 are called by a name, Sheng Nu. You know what that means? That means leftover woman. If you're over 30 and you're not married, you're called leftover. Do you realize how much shame that brings somebody? Of course you want to get married because you want to protect yourself from all that shame. A spouse has become more than just a spouse. Now, it's not as intense in Indonesia, but there is also a similar pressure of that here, isn't there? By the way, I don't care if you're 50 and you're not married. Don't let anybody tell you you're left over.
A car, a house, a job, they often become more than just cars, house, jobs. A spouse becomes more than just a spouse. These material things often become a means to protect ourselves from feeling less. They become a means to protect ourselves from feeling shame. Like the Samaritan woman that said, Sir, give me this water, give me this material thing so that I will not be thirsty, yes, but also give it to me so that I can stop coming to this well where I feel shame. Jesus was not satisfied with this request. Because if he merely gave the Samaritan woman water to avoid her shame, all he would be doing is numbing the shame temporarily. And also prevent her from truly experiencing who Jesus is and what he can actually, actually offer her in dealing with her shame. So Jesus presses on in his effort to reveal to her who he really is, to quench a more urgent thirst than just physical thirst. He does this by bringing her face to face with the source of her shame, which leads us to our second point. Jesus as prophet and a question about worship. Jesus in the following verses brings this woman to the very thing that she is most ashamed of, brings this woman to face the very thing that she so tries to hide very, very hardly. Look at verses 16 to 17. After the woman asked for this water so that she can avoid feeling shame of coming to this well, Jesus, asked, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Apparently, she's had five divorces, and the person she's currently living with is not her husband. Of course she'd feel shame in that town because all the townspeople know it and it was, it was really looked down upon. And it's no secret in the town. What did Jesus tell her to do? Call your husband, call that source of shame and bring it to me. Come here with it. Now, maybe for us, is it isn't the state of our previous or current romantic relationships. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It could be something else, right? It could be a particular decision we've made in the past. It could be a hidden lie or a hidden sin that we do in closed doors that no one knows about. Maybe, like the Samaritan woman, the very thing that makes us experience shame could be the state of our past and current romantic relationships. For some reason, that's true for all human beings. If, if any subject is going to bring about shame, that'd be the one to do it, isn't it? What we did or are doing in it, words we said or words that we received in those relationships, the manner in which the breakup or, or divorce happened, like the woman, or maybe the lack of a relationship. Maybe that's what's bringing us shame. Whatever the source of shame is, we will not truly experience who Christ is if we keep avoiding feeling it, if we keep suppressing it. Jesus is saying, whatever it is, bring it to me. I have something that can do more than just suppress it. I have something that can do more than just avoid it. I have living water. That might be too close to home for some of us, but I think it's healthy. So let's look at um, her response in verses 19 to 20. After Jesus says, bring him to me, um, I know your past romantic relationships. I know the source of your shame. I know it all. This is how she responded, verses 19 to 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus just pried into the depths of her shame. Jesus just revealed the very thing that has been dictating her life that she feels so heavy about. And she goes, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. In, in counseling, this is called deflection. When you try to pry into somebody's heart and you just bring it back to the head, she's still trying to avoid it. You have had, you feel really shame about this, don't you? Oh, you're a prophet. That's not the response Jesus was looking for. I don't want to over-cyclize this passage, but it's pretty obvious that's, that's what happened, I think. Now, it's not wrong to ask Jesus a lot of questions. I have a lot of theological questions to ask him myself. But this woman is still not dealing with her underlying problem of guilt and shame. Still not asking him for the thing that he said he can offer. Not theological answers, which are very good to get. Not stuff, which isn't evil in itself. But what he can give her is rest from shame. But, however, this woman's progression of understanding of who Jesus is still moved forward, didn't it? First, she thought that he was a hostile stranger. Now she thought, and then she thought that he was a friendly person. Now she thinks him a prophet. Her understanding of who he is isn't there yet, but it's moving forward. So Jesus continues in this dialogue to help her see who he really is. Jesus said to her, and Jesus answers her theological questions, because I think a lot of it was actually sincere curiosity too. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's a long answer, but do you see where Jesus is taking this conversation? Just a moment ago, he showed her that he had insight to her secret life, something a prophet might have preview into. But now, Jesus claims to know secrets more than just her secret personal romantic life. Jesus is claiming to know secrets that belong to the divine, secrets that belong to God, to the heavenly. Verse 21, he claims to know the Father. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. Verse 22, he's claiming that he knows the true God. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. Verse 23, he's claiming to know the true way of worship. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And lastly, verse 24, he claims to know the nature of God. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Those are really, really big claims for a mere prophet to make. You see, those are huge claims. Who can have insights to such divine matters? Not just a hostile stranger, not just a friendly person, not just a prophet, but the woman guessed, and we might be rightfully thinking, is God himself. Only God himself would have such insights to such divine matters, which is what the woman thought in verse 25. After Jesus revealed to her all these divine secrets, the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. The woman is saying, oh, I'm glad you think you know all these answers, but the Messiah is going to come, and he's actually going to tell us all these things that you just claim to know. Here it is. It is at this point that Jesus finally reveals to her who he is. Not as a mere stranger, 
not just as a friendly person who has a lot of resources, not only as a prophet. Verse 26, Jesus answers her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus finally reveals to her his true nature. I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. I am the Christ, the one the Old Testament has been prophesying about. That's me. I'm the one who has come to redeem the world. You know what this did to her? It made her forget her physical needs, and it made her forget even her shame. It made a worshiper out of a sinner. Which leads us to our third point. Jesus as Messiah and self-forgetful worship. Look at the reaction this woman had once Jesus revealed his identity to her. Verse 28 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Notice she was still not yet convinced that he was the Christ. Verse 29, can this be the Christ? She was still not 100% sure. But even the possibility of Jesus being the Messiah, even the possibility that this Messiah was willing to get into a conversation with her blew her mind. And it resulted in two things. Two things that's been a theme throughout this whole passage. Look at verse 28. And notice, first, she left her water jar. She forgot about her physical thirst. She was such in shock that she left her water jar and he said, this is a much bigger deal than my physical thirst. The Messiah could be this guy and he could have been talking to me this whole time. And he left, she left her water jar to go where? To go into the town. The very people she's been trying to avoid this whole time. She forgot her shame. She thought, is this possible that the Messiah is here, that the Christ is here? Forget my thirst. Forget what people think of me. This is a much bigger deal than that. She forgot it all. She was in such shock, in panic, you could say. Went straight to town and said, guys, I think the Messiah is here. I think he's the one. But friends, she has yet to have dealt with her shame. Still, she was not fully convinced that Jesus was the Christ. And her forgetting of her thirst and her forgetting of her shame was only caused by a momentary hype. The Messiah, Jesus, oh, is that possible? And left. Still has not dealt with it. She still has not received this living water that Jesus promised he can give her, that can deal with her shame. What she has still not yet done is that she has still not yet brought her source of shame to Jesus, still avoiding it, still suppressing it. Jesus is saying, bring your husband to me. It could be whatever for you. Bring it to me, and I will give you living water, and I will deal with your shame. Now, what would happen if she did that? What would happen if we did that? Maybe during our time of personal prayer or when we're reading the Bible, or when we're confessing our sins in time of worship Sunday morning, or when we sing this next song after the sermon. What's going to happen when we bring our shame, whatever it is, to Jesus? You'll see two things happen from this passage. One, you'll see living water cleaning us from our guilt. Two, you'll see the Messiah committing himself to us eternally. When you bring your source of shame to Jesus, you will see living water cleaning us from our guilt we will see the Messiah, God himself, committing to us eternally. First, 
will see living water cleaning us from our guilt. What is this living water? Well, if you look at John chapter 3, take a look at it when you're home later today. And even the first few verses of our, of our passage today, which is verses 1 and 2, you'll see another theme of water. But it's not water to drink. Let's look at verses 1 to 2. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, see, the theme of water is for baptism. What does baptism symbolize? <coughs> Cleansing of guilt. When and how does Jesus cleanse us from our sin? When and how does Jesus clean us from our guilt? Not when we're physically baptized, but on the cross. Bring to me your shame. Let me deal with it. Let me clean you from it. Whatever guilty part you played in bringing about that situation of shame, I've died for it. Whatever guilty part you played in bringing about that, that place in which you are so afraid people will know about you, you're innocent because I've taken the punishment for that on the cross. I will pay for it on my cross. By the way, do you remember another time where the theme of water comes up in the book of John? Another time when Jesus asked for a drink? Another time when he said, I'm thirsty? John 19, 28. On the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. On the cross, he cleansed us from whatever guilty part we may have played in bringing about that thing that is most shameful to us and cleansed us from that guilt. Colossians 2.14, by casting the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But this is not enough. It's not enough to deal with our shame just by taking the guilt away, just by taking the debt away. That doesn't really deal with our shame. It's like telling a guilty criminal, I'm going to pay for your prison fine and cancel your legal debt, um, and then I'll see you later. Sure, that releases us from prison. Sure, that releases us from the consequences of our, of our guilt. It makes us thankful, but it doesn't really deal with our shame just quite yet. This is why when we bring our shame to Jesus, we will see much more than just him cleansing us. We will see much more than him just paying for our legal debt. We will also see the Messiah committing himself to us eternally. It's one thing to pay for a criminal's debt, then leave. It's another thing to pay for a criminal's debt, then after they've been released, tell him that you love and care for them and you'll be committed to them forever. That deals with shame. When we bring our shame to him, he does not only pay for the guilty part we play in it, but he tells us that he will remain ours forever. He doesn't just bring us back to neutral. He says he'll never let us go. Where do we see this in our passage? Go to verse 22. Interestingly enough, when Jesus answered the woman's theological question, this is where we see this. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. He's saying salvation is from the Jews. What he means is go back to the Jewish narrative, the Jewish scriptures. Samaritans have their own version of the Old Testament. He's saying Look at the Jewish Old Testament. Look at the scriptures. Look at the Bible. From here, you will see salvation. This is why he said in verses 23 to 24, we must worship in spirit and in truth. Not only in spirit, not only with emotions, 
but our emotions must be founded and grounded and informed by truth. The truth of what? The truth of scriptures. This is where Jesus tells us he's not only paying for our debt to bring us back to neutral, he, was rem- he will remain ours forever. You see this in the Old Testament. How? Think about it. Every time in the Old Testament, when you see a man encountering a woman at a well, what happens? First, Genesis 24. Isaac meets Rebekah at a well. What happens later? They get married. Genesis 29. Jacob meets Rachel at a well. What happens later? They get married. Exodus chapter 2. Moses saves a woman named Zipporah. Where? At a well. What happens later? They get married. Almost every time in the Old Testament, when a man meets a woman, the theme is marriage. And now we see a man, Jesus, meeting a woman at a well. And what theme came up? Marriage. The woman's previous divorces. The source of this woman's shame. But that's not the marital relationship that's most important here. The marital theme emphasized here is not this woman's past previous marriages. It's another relationship that is being offered to her right then and there by Jesus himself. When the New Testament talks about the relationship between Jesus and his saved people, his church, what is the imagery that's often used? A husband and a wife. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the groom. Who is the church? The church is often called the bride of Christ. Look at Revelation 21, verses 2 to 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Jesus, the groom, us, the bride, the one being pursued and loved. What Jesus is saying to this Samaritan woman, what Jesus is trying to tell us today, I'm not here to only pay for whatever mistakes you've done that brought about this situation of shame that you have in your mind. I'm here to commit myself to you forever. The cross wasn't only a payment of debt where he cleared our legal record of guilt. The cross, so to speak, was a proposal. When the God of the universe commits himself to us, even in the midst of all our shame, forever. What is it? What is it about your life that you conceal most from others to see? What truth about your past, what is it about you now that you're most ashamed about? Is it, like the Samaritan woman, a divorce? Is it a past relationship? Is it a secret sin? Maybe it's a state of your current relationship. Maybe it's a bad decision you made. Maybe it's your temper. Is it the lack of love you have for your spouse right now? Is it how impatient you may be towards your children? Is it the way you treat the opposite sex? What what is it? Stop hiding it from him. Bring it to me, he says. And when you do, you will see a cross, a place where your guilt in whatever part you've taken to bring about that moment of shame paid by the one true God. But you'll also see an altar where this God, who paid for our debts, 
commits himself to us with whatever leftover shame we may have, whatever future shame we may run into. Your guilt has been paid for, your shame increasingly healed because the one person who matters most in the universe has said, I want to be yours. And I want you to be mine. And I'm doing this on the cross. We live after the crucifixion. We no longer question, like the Samaritan woman, whether or not this is the Messiah, whether or not this is the Christ. And if the possibility of having conversed with the Messiah made this woman forget her thirst and her shame, how much more should it impact us, those whom the Messiah has not only conversed with, but died for? Let this drive us into worship, in spirit and in truth, the truth of who Christ is, not as a merely resourceful man that we can get stuff from, but as the Messiah who paid for our guilt, not as the person who just wants to help us avoid and suppress our guilt. He paid for it, and he wants to be with you forever. Stop hiding our shame from him. Bring it before him. Even in this next song, as we sing about the cross, bring it to a place where sin and shame are powerless. And let this drive us, like it did the Samaritan woman, to share this message to others. That indeed, the Christ has come. Jesus Christ, the man, the prophet, the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, how I often doubt you have this living water. How I often doubt the intensity of how crazy you are about me. And how we often doubt that too, I, I presume. Lord God, I beg you that you help us stop suppressing and avoiding feeling the shame by working harder, by getting more money, by having a nicer car, by whatever it may be. Finding a date, those are all great things. But let it never be something that makes us avoid feeling shame. For you are passionate about dealing with it. You ask us, bring it to me. Bring it before, not a well, but a cross, where you will see your debts paid for, and you will see the God, the King, the Creator of the universe say, I am yours. Will you have me? And you are mine. Let us receive this love, and that nothing can take us away from it, because whatever future guilt we may run into, whatever future shame we may have, the blood of Christ is stronger. Thank you for this mercy. Thank you for being a God that pursues. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.